Please take your seats. Thank you so much, Curtis and, uh, and Ron and, and Vic and a couple of others who are here this morning who are joining us. It's uh, uh, Sarah, as you, many of you know, had, uh, had an accident a couple of weeks ago. She's actually sat in the foyer because uh, she wanted to come and hear my preach. I love my wife. Um, but uh, so this is why we're so grateful that Curtis came and shared. And it's just like old times, Curtis. Is he still here? Is he ready to go? He's right there. So uh, it's it's wonderful. We do appreciate and uh, and Vic and I do encourage you to to join that team. Uh, did you notice that Boyd couldn't actually stand up? He's still in recovery, right, Boyd? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. That would be, uh, it'd be wonderful if you could uh, join in with that. Um, a few weeks ago, I went to see a movie, and some of you may have seen it. It was only actually out. Oh, by the way, the youth church you're staying in today, um, because uh, we felt that this might be a message that you would enjoy to hear. Uh, I went to see a movie. It was actually only released for two nights, and uh, it was by the director many of you have heard of called Peter Jackson. He was the guy, the New Zealand uh, guy who, uh, who, who uh, did The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and he did this, he did this, uh, this documentary where the British uh, Military Museum released footage of uh, World War I um, uh, the, the film from World War I and interviews, and there was over 400 hours of it. And so he did an amazing job of, of colorizing it and making, they even had lip readers where you could see what some of the people were saying in the movie. And it, it was really a tremendously powerful uh, time for Sarah and I went, and, and Luke as well, and the thought that was, there were young guys 15 years old. Uh, who lied to get onto the front line in World War I. And, and it was a very grounding experience. It was an experience that left you very grateful for history and for what has gone before. And, uh, and, and I would highly encourage you to see it. I think they're re-releasing it over the next couple of weeks. I highly recommend you go and see it. Because here's the beauty of when you have time to reflect on where you've come from. Not only do you get a, an extreme gratitude for where you are, it actually strengthens you. It, it, it gives you a feeling of, if they were able to do that, these 15, 16, 18, you know, into their 20-year-old young men, and, and then the families that were left, the young ladies who poured into the factories to uh, make the munitions and everything and supported the war effort, it makes you feel, if they can do that, I can do that. I, there's something, but it also is quite convicting, because then it makes you wonder, can I? Can I do that? Are we that same group of people who would do the incredible efforts to see a common cause come together in a way that really um, was, uh, was, was unbelievable when you actually see the, uh, the footage? I asked my mum and dad um, if, if we, we talked about relatives that had been in World War I and uh, on, my, on, my, on my maternal grandparents' side, there was uh, a guy who, uh, my, I guess my great-great-grandfather, right dad? Uh, he was uh, an officer in the Navy in, in World War I. So you're looking at photos, it grounds you. The thing with us as a church, because of the, the where we live, and we've been looking at this series, This Is Us, we've been saying, okay, who is it that we are? Who are we as Christians? Who are we as a church? It's very easy just to look at our moment of time, our pocket of culture, and make decisions as to what the church is based on what we see, and, and politics plays into that, and terminology is changing, and that's okay. It's okay that, that words that we hold dear aren't necessarily popular anymore, because things move on, culture changes, but there's certain things, certain grounding, certain truth that doesn't change. 
And so I've been, I've been preparing these two sermons, this sermon this morning and next week. I, I've been thinking about this, reading it through for the last year or so. Because what I want to do is give good justice as to where we have come from as a church. Where we, what shoulders we stand on, if you like, when it comes to church. And by doing so, I want us to get an understanding of not only where we've come from, but who we are. And the power that we have, and his name is Jesus, the promise we've been given, because we need to remember that Jesus himself said this, I tell you, you are Peter, who's talking to the apostle Peter at the time, who at that moment was anything but the fulfillment of this verse. Peter was, you know, we've talked a lot about Peter. Uh, He was an interesting character. And, And Jesus said, on this rock, Peter, on you, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in all intents and purposes, you and I this morning are Peter. You might not feel like there's much to be built upon. You might feel like, man, I, I, I'm just struggling to get through my day. Whereas Peter, when, when Peter let down Jesus not long after this, in a tragic way, but Peter, Jesus saw something in Peter that he didn't see in himself. And he said this, I will build my church. Whose church? My church, Jesus said. It's not our church, this is Jesus' church. And I'm not talking about this building, very grateful for the building, but the church, who we are, the essence of what we believe in, Jesus will grow it, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the beginning, God created. And he said on the, on the sixth day, he said, this is good. He saw us, he saw mankind, and he was happy. He was pleased with it, and he rested. A few years later, uh, sorry, a short time later, sin infiltrated the creation and broke it. And a few years later, the Noah came onto the scene. Noah, some of these statues, and some, I want to show you some of the, I'm not saying Noah looked like this, he's an impressive looking guy and a fantastic beard that any hipster would be proud of. But Noah, the floods came. The God actually says in his scripture that he regretted what he had done. The floods rose And it was almost like the slate was wiped clean. But a promise was made to Noah, never again. The year is 2000 and God made a promise to Abraham. And he said to Abraham that you, I will make your family a great nation. You will look at the stars and you will see that there's number there are in stars or the number that you'll see is sand on the beaches is the number of people who are going to be in your family. He made a promise. He made a promise to Noah. He made a promise to Adam. And he made a promise to Abraham that there's a promise coming. And he didn't give his name at that time, but his name we now know to be Jesus. And he said, upon this promise, I will build my church. A rescuer is coming and he will restore the promise. He will restore us back to the way things would be before sin came into the world. History moves on and we get to 1400 AD and Abraham passes the torch onto his son Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to Joseph and now Israel this small fledgling family is now a nation of two million people enslaved in Egypt and God called Moses and he gave him a promise Moses led them out of Egypt and Joshua led them into the promise and then we move into this strange period of Israel's history Well, they demanded from God that they would have a king. And so God gave them the request and he gave them Saul and that didn't turn out so well. And then this young man, this good-looking man called David came onto the scene. He was anointed from head to foot and the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. He wrote songs. We're told he was a good-looking man. He was a warrior. He was a poet. 
He was everything that any person would want to be at that time. And little did they know, at that moment, this was the pinnacle of Israel's history. They they would talk for another thousand years of the days of David, the the crown of David, the kingdom of David, the city of David, that this is their pinnacle. This is this small fledging family's pinnacle. And his name was David. And he had a son called Solomon. Now Solomon is king. And he writes Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and he has many, many wives. And fractures start appearing within this story that the promise that God had given, people would start questioning, civil wars started to break out. And you could see fractures coming until eventually as we move through history, the Assyrians invaded from the north and took away the northern part of the kingdom never to be heard again. Around about the same time, The Babylonians invaded the south and they take away, for over 70 years, they take away Israel. And a small remnant is left and then we enter this strange period called the years of silence. 400 years of silence. You can find it in the Bible from Malachi through to Matthew. Nothing is written. Nothing is written. Babylon rose and Babylon fell. Persia rose and Persia falls. The Greek culture rises and the Greek culture falls. And then this new civilization comes in and they are called the Romans. And they are now the ones that paved the way for the one called Jesus. The promise, the the promised one, the one that said, that God said, would restore back to us, this church, the promise. And his name was Jesus. And he had this strange group of disciples, one of which was Peter. He had this inner core of three, one of whom was Peter. Upon this rock, Peter, upon you, even though you, 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 you let me down, even though you deny me, upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And anybody looking at the promise of God at that moment in time would have thought God had made a mistake. Because there was no promise to be seen. The Roman civilization was so oppressive. All of Israel were looking for the Messiah. And yet all the same time when Jesus was stood in front of the king. And the king said, what is truth? And truth was stood right in front of him in the form of Jesus just before he was crucified. We look past all the time looking for another promise. But the promise was there. His name was Jesus. He said, upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. And then this group of three were part of a group of 12. This group of 12 became 72, and then 120, and then we have the upper room. After Jesus was, went back to heaven, after the promised one, this confusion, I thought he was the one. I thought he was the one that, that we, we read about in Noah, and, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Joseph, and Moses. What about Jesus? Now he's gone, so you've got this small group, less than the number are here right now meeting to celebrate the Passover celebration that had been celebrated for 1400 years but this Passover was different this Passover was in the upper room and they started to pray and then God descends the promise one comes upon the group of people who were no more qualified than you and me but it wasn't about them it was about God and his promise I will build my church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the fledgling church was born. And just like a little toddler, it came blinking out into the the bright light, confused. But they had a promise. And the promise was the gospel. 
Because up until then, the whole idea of, of religion and getting favor with God was found in what you do for God, the sacrifices you made so that you could gain forgiveness, so you could gain life. But now the promise had changed. The sacrifice of all sacrifices had died on a cross. And your and my sin, for those who believe, died with him. And so this fledgling church takes this new message of the gospel out. And the year is 38 AD. And the first person to die for the promise was Stephen. The very first martyr, Stephen. They would have thrown him into a hole and buried him with rocks. They're 20,000 strong now. And they scatter into all the villages. This fledgling church, they've gone from 120 to 20,000 and they scatter. Paul takes the gospel west. The first missionary. And John is starting to write, the year is 90 AD. See, John is an old, old man at this time. And he'd lived life and he had the opportunity to, maybe three generations of Christians now. And he's concerned about what he's seeing because he's starting to see heresies infiltrate the church, especially Gnosticism. This idea that where Jesus wasn't really man, he wasn't really God, he was just kind of spirit. And doing away with the whole doctrine of resurrection and, in, and, and incarnation and, and Jesus dying on the cross and rising again. You see, and John wrote, First John, while he was watching this fledgling church, 20,000 strong, struggle with the idea of what Jesus being fully man and Jesus being fully God really was. But the promise continues to grow. Because people like you and me, in whom Jesus said, I will build my church, they stayed strong on the promise. They did not let it go. And so we enter into the early church period, this, this period from 100 to 500 AD, and the attacks just increased. External, internal. They went into vigorous persecution. Now, you need to understand that we literally stand on the shoulders of men and women and children that have gone before us that would not let go of this promise. They would not back down. They did not care what people thought. They did not care what people said. They were standing on the promise because they believed in the promise and his name was Jesus. People like you and me. This vigorous persecution started, especially between the period of 64 AD and 100 AD. And there was really acute time for about 11 years, the so-called decade of horror in the year 250 AD. Thousands of Christians murdered, persecuted, slaughtered, and tortured for the cause that you and I get to stand on a Sunday morning and sometimes complain about. That you and I can stand on the literally in the blood of the martyrs that have gone before us. You could really categorize Christians in three ways at that time. There were the believers, the martyrs. They didn't make it. They were the la- there was the lapses, as they were called. Those that actually said, well, yeah, I recant of my faith. I actually don't believe in Jesus. They said they did when it was comfortable to do so. And they pulled it back when it was uncomfortable to do so. And then there were the confessors. They were the ones that refused to recant. You could tell who the confessors were. They were the ones that were missing eyes. They were missing legs. They were missing um, uh, tongues. Because they refused to turn their back on the one called Jesus and the promise that he gave. This is who we are. This is us. This is the church. This is what we believe in, the promise. 
the intellectual attacks increased, especially between 120 AD and 200 AD. Heresies threatening to threaten the very core of what we believe in started to arise. And it's interesting because if you look at the teaching of many uh, people today, you can track back the teaching that we think is cool and new. You can track back to the heresies from 100 AD. Nothing is new when it comes to changing the Bible. But there were a group of men and women that stood up. The so-called apologists. Names that we are probably not even aware of. These people who examined the scriptures. And they stood firm. And while these intellectual attacks were rising up, they defended the faith. People like Justin Martyr. I think you can guess why his name was Justin Martyr. Ignatius. Polycarp. These people who literally gave their life to depending the truth. Names that you and I don't even think about. But if it wasn't for these people, we would not be able to stand here today and declare the truth of Jesus Christ. I will build my church, Jesus said, even in the midst of acute persecution. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These so-called apostolic fathers, they championed good theology. The canon of scripture was brought together. And the year now, around about 150 AD, is this large group of bishops, as they were called, or elders, if you like, who were being murdered and slaughtered all over the kingdom, all over the church. Kind of makes you think, when we think about eldership and bishops and leadership in the church these days in comparison to what they lived through, they were constantly looking for new leaders. But here's what was fascinating, because as quickly as these leaders were being murdered and persecuted and tortured, there was a whole new group of people saying, yes, I'll do it. I'll stand. I'll lead. I'll volunteer. I'll do it, because I see that the promise is true. We have this beautiful period in the midst of this persecution where the church is starting to form, where pastoral ministry starts to take shape. Church buildings are being built. And interestingly, tensions start increasing. Because there's this tension between what was called as the itinerant ministry, where you move around, and the local church ministry. The attacks continued. And so they started to write things called the creeds. These creeds that we might look back on and and look at creeds that you can still read today. You look at these creeds and you think they're an old-fashioned form that we don't do that. We've moved on. We've progressed. But these creeds sustain the essence of the truth. Some of them were so simple. Christos Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. This fledgling church who couldn't read or write memorized these creeds because this was the essence of the truth. This was the essence of the promise. Jesus is Lord. So they would hold conferences and and these conferences would often last uh, days, weeks, months, years even to establish what it was that you and I take for granted today as being the truth that we stand upon. These men and these women who stood up for the truth and, and we get a book and we buy it in chapters. We go, oh, This is the truth. This is the way we should do church. And sometimes we ignore 2,000 years worth of people who have lived and died for the essence of the truth that we call church today. Men like Athenaeus. This man, he dedicated his life to defending the truth that Jesus was fully man and fully God. The doctrine of the Trinity. This man 
defended that truth because at that time there was this strong push towards that Jesus wasn't actually fully man. And he stood and he defended it. People struggled and argued and fought for the truth that we take for granted today. And then in 311 AD, peace descended. Really interesting. It's like the persecution just seemed to take a breath. We move into a new period. The year is 313 and the man is Constantine. He had a dream one night. He's not a Christian. He had a dream one night that he should put a cross on his shield as he went into battle. And so he put a cross on his shield. He went into battle. He won the battle. He brought and started searching Christianity and brought Christianity to Rome. And over a period of few years, the persecutors now become the promoters of Christianity. Because God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If I have to use dreams, then I'll use dreams. That's who we are. This is us. We move into 590 in the Middle Ages, probably some of the darkest periods when it comes to church that we've ever experienced. Pope Gregory. See, the Roman church at that time, Pope Gregory was essentially a pastor. He was the local Roman church pastor. And, and the, the Roman Catholic Church would look to him as their first pope. And this church, this Roman church, starts developing a great deal of strength and a great deal of power It's strong in size, it's strong in wealth. New words are starting to be introduced into the vocabulary of the church and cracks start appearing in solid truth. Words like purgatory, mass, transubstantiation later on in the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages became the Dark Ages. When people started to walk away from the scripture, started walking away from the truth of the Bible, the truth that people like Athenaeus and, and others that before him, the apostolic fathers, lived and died upon, they started to walk away from that truth, thinking that they knew better, and started introducing their own doctrines and their own truth. And the immorality and the debauchery flooded in. Simony was now commonplace. Simony was this from the idea in Acts where Simon, who tried to buy the power of God, where the church at that time would would just find bits of bone or pieces of wood and say, this is a piece of Jesus' cross, or this bone was was Peter's, part of Peter's skull, and and if you have this, then you can have extra power if you buy this, and it resulted in a great deal of manipulation and abuse. Where's the promise? Where's Jesus? Has God not forgotten bishoprics started to be developed. This is where the church was buying and selling, or kings and queens and rulers at the time could buy and sell pastorates because they knew if they could have church, then church meant control and power and also meant money. It was a sad and painful time. It was also a time when some good was happening. Church is responsible for starting education where peasant children would come to things called cathedral schools. Cathedral meaning the seat for a bishop. And from these places, huge churches were developed like we see often in Europe. Churches that sometimes we might be critical of, but it's from these churches that we can point and look at universities. The University of Paris, University of Oxford, University of Cambridge, all came from this movement, this Christian movement. You see, God had not finished yet. I will build my church, he said. It's not going to be on the back of good ideas. Leave it to me. I know what I'm doing. Even in the darkest times, he knows what he is doing. These beautiful cathedrals filled with amazing art. Art, we promote art at the South for a reason, not just because we want to find something to do on a Friday morning, although it's a great thing to do on a Friday morning, the South Art Project. 
art is part of who God is. And art is part of who we are as a church because of the history of art. You see, this was the closest to the people at the time could get to learning about the stories from the Bible because they couldn't read or write. There was no such thing as a Bible for them to look at. They would enter the cathedrals and be overwhelmed by the glory of God because they would look up and they would see light and there was metaphorical light and real light shining through these stained glass windows. And by that, they would learn and they would stand in awe. The statues that we might look at and go, oh, let's just do away with all that. Beautiful connections through art. It's a really weird time between the 11 and 1300s, the so-called Crusades, where the church in Rome decided they wanted to take back Jerusalem from the Muslims so they would send people to go and fight. And they won the first time and then they got pushed back. So somebody said, I've, got, I've had a dream. We, we should send children. We should send thousands of children into the Crusades because they are going to win. What they didn't realize is every one of those children got sold into slavery. And that was in the year 1212. I will build my church. As we move on through the Middle Ages, we're now looking at 1500s. And this new concept of communion was being introduced. This transubstantiation where the idea was the bread and the wine actually turned into Jesus' blood. You see what? was started as a poor idea, unbiblical. God actually used, as you will see in a minute, in ways that was tremendous. But these new ideas, and the idea with this is it kept the laity, the you and me, distanced away from the clergy because in their hands they literally had life and death. You don't have this, you don't get to heaven. And then control came in. Tremendously powerful time for the church. They kept the peasants in fear of the clergy. But God was not through because something fascinated started to happen. Now you remember, I'm talking about a thousand years of oppression and weird heretical teaching. Strange times. But God wasn't finished. Because what happened was the gospel got pushed underground. And even in modern day, the times and the nations that actually where the gospel gets pushed underground, places like China we actually find that the gospel percolates and strengthens and becomes more beautiful. And that's what was happening. A whole group of people called, we would call the mystics, started to rise up. People like Francis of Assisi. And immediately we go, oh, well, that sounds awfully Catholic. The thing is, is that God was using these people. He was speaking to these people, teaching these people. People like St. Francis of Assisi. We've got Thomas Aquinas. These people who actually their devotional writing spoke of the gospel in a beautiful way. The gospel was percolating all through this time. God wasn't finished. Then we move into this time called the pre-reformers. Men and women like Peter Waldo in Italy. His father was a wealthy merchant and he was reading the scriptures one day and he saw this scripture, if you be perfect, give all you have to the poor. And he took that literally. He literally took all the wealth of his family and gave it away. His authenticity and love for the poor attracted people to him. And this whole movement started to grow. Hundreds of people banded around this humble, wonderful, loving man called Peter Waldo. You see, God wasn't finished with his church because he doesn't need established large movements. He needs just you and me bring the truth of the gospel back to the forefront. This radical concept he started to read about called grace. 
That you could be justified by faith, not by buying something. This was an unbelievable idea. And Peter Waldo started to tell more and more people about it. Until eventually his group of followers were driven into the French Alps. And they died by the hundreds. They were tortured and slaughtered for their beliefs. Many of the times they were actually was initiated by the established leadership and the church and the politics of the time. John Wycliffe in England. John Wycliffe had this beautiful vision that the Bible and the grace of this Bible and the story of grace and the gospel within it should be in the hands of people. That, that this, 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 the, the, the new gospel, this new good news started to percolate in his life in a way that was remarkable to him. He shared it with us. He shared it with the clergy and the leadership of the church at the time. And they said no. So he then went, okay, I'm going to start training the so-called lollards, he called them. Lollard meaning to mutter, to whisper. And the lollards, this group of uneducated people, went into the countryside and started spreading the gospel because the Bible said, I will prevail. I will build my church. The year is now in the 1400s and John Huss in Czechoslovakia starts to see the promise that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus and the gospel is the way, the truth, and the life. And he starts writing about the nature of the church and the nature of the gospel because this is pre-printing press. He's writing by hand all this doctrine and all this truth and he starts telling people and so these days he is demanded, you must recant, you must take back your belief in Jesus. You must establish your belief on the church because now the church had moved away so far from the belief in Jesus. It in itself was becoming something that was worshipped. And John Hustle, no, Jesus is the one that we should worship. Jesus is God. And he starts writing until eventually they arrest him, demand that he recant. He wouldn't. So they took all his life works, all the books that he had written, threw them, set fire to them, and threw him on top. And he died. See, it's upon people that we don't even know their names. You know, one day, people might not know your name. And that's okay. But they will know the one called Jesus. They will know the promise. They will know that he is the one that will build his church. The year is 1483. And Martin Luther is born. Martin Luther, this man. Some would say he was a drunkard, cussing, vulgar, arrogant loudmouth, one that you wouldn't want to really spend time with. And history actually points to that as being true. See, God loves to use people that we, you and I, wouldn't necessarily choose. He said, I will build my church. Martin Luther was destined to become a lawyer and he was on his way home one day and a huge lightning storm struck and he was so terrified. He said, God, if you will save me, I will become a priest. I will dedicate my life to you. He lived and true to his word, he went to a monastery and he was overcome with this sense of his own sin and inadequacy. He would spend hours literally beating and whipping himself to try and cleanse himself from sin. He was in a desperate, desperate state. His supervisor, a loving father. Now, I need to just share this with you quickly. Even though I paint a picture that is very bleak of the church, you need to understand that within that church, there were men and there were women who were keeping the flame alive. And thankfully, Martin Luther had a good man. 
He said, Martin, you, by this time he was already a professor in the university, Martin Luther, and, and so he was told, you need to study Galatians, you need to study Romans, you need to study the Psalms, in the hope that his supervisor gave him these assignments, in the hope that he would distract him long enough from beating himself up literally to cleanse himself from the sin. And so Martin Luther headed to Rome to try and find some truth. He was devastated by what he saw in Rome. The sale of of relics and what he knew already from his writing. He said, this cannot be the answer. And so one day, he's doing penance. Penance is where you literally put yourself through pain in order to try and cleanse yourself from sin. He was doing penance. He was climbing the steps on his knees outside a cathedral. And suddenly, it hit him. The just shall live by faith. And in that second, friends, don't ever, ever minimalize the word of God that God might give you one day. In that one sentence, God changed the whole direction of the church at that time. On that one sentence, that one piece of scripture, the whole trajectory of church changed. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So one day, as you know, I'm sure the story, he decides to take what he saw as 95 theses and he hammered them onto the wall of the local cathedral. A very common practice at the time. People would sign and write, they would write things, they would put them on the wall and then a debate would start because what he had seen, what had prompted his disgust of what he had seen is this sale of indulgences. Indulgences, the idea was, is that you could plan ahead what sins you wanted to commit and by throwing money into the offering, then you could go ahead and commit that sin. And this disgusted uh, Martin Luther. He didn't see it in the scriptures anywhere. And a priest called Tetzel would have this. He said, as soon as the moment in the coffer, the coin clings, your relative from purgatory flings. The idea being is that those of your loved ones who are in purgatory, this area that is not in the Bible, that they've held before you get to heaven, they could be there for millions of years unless you give money. Friends, you can track back that teaching into modern day teaching, if you look carefully enough. You pay this, then you'll get that. You give this to my ministry, then I will send you this. And then if you take this little piece of cloth that I've prayed over and put it onto that part of your body, then you too will be healed. Indulgences, it's exactly the same. So he devoted himself, Martin Luther, to the scripture and he came up with five statements, the so-called solar statements, the solar scriptura, the Bible alone, solar gratia, by grace alone, solar fide, by faith alone. And the church that he was part of was furious at this, this, this movement that was starting to go around him. So they brought him to a, a conference, essentially. It's called the Diet of Worms and demanded that he recant. Can we discuss this? No. You recant. You're wrong. Take it back. And he had 24 hours to think about it. And the next morning, the very famous statement comes out of his lips as he stood in front of the people who literally he knew could kill him. And he said this, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. Oh, I thought I had this on screen. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. I cannot. I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Amen. And in that utterance of amen, Martin Luther knew that his life could be shortened dramatically. So for you and me, 
When we think about walking across the room to share the gospel with somebody, and we immediately think, wow, well, what will they think? What will they do? That's not my personality. I don't like that idea. You have to remember the men and the women that have gone before us for millennia who literally stood in front of people who could rip their whole lives apart and would refuse to recant. Martin Luther was kidnapped. As soon as that meeting ended, he was kidnapped, not by his foes, but by his friends because they were afraid for him. And they took him to Wartburg Castle and placed him in a cell. It drove Martin Luther nuts. This is the actual place. You can visit it today. So Martin Luther, being the genius that he was, and he truly was a genius, he took the Greek Bible and translated it into Germany, into German, thereby standardizing the German language. And in that moment, the Bible got into the hands of the common folk. That was the first time that men and women and children could actually see the Bible because Martin Luther was a genius at media. He used the printing press that was starting to be used more and more. It was like social media at the time. It was being devoured. And so Bibles were starting to be printed in Germany. And, and this, this, this beautiful new doctrine called the gospel, the just shall live by faith, started to envelope the whole of Europe. He was a strong believer in the priesthood of all believers. And so there's this wonderful group called the Mothers of the Reformation. Now you need to understand the social standing of women at that time is not as it is today. And so even more so for them to stand in front and to declare the truth of the gospel was not only amazing in itself, but the fact that they were women was even more amazing. And we don't even know their names, many of them. We've got Argula van Grumbach. You have to forgive my lack of German ability. Katharina Schutzel. Maria Dontier. Maria Dontier said this, If God has given grace to some good women, revealing to them by his holy scriptures something holy and good, should they hesitate to write, speak, and declare it to the one another because of the defamers of truth? Oh, it would be too bold to try to stop them. And it would be too foolish for us to hide the talent that God has given us. God who gives us the grace to preserve to the end. Amen. There is nothing that I can do to describe the opposition that these men and women were facing. But they would not back down. Because once the word of God gets out, you cannot contain it. Which is why, friends, we stand on the Bible today in this church. All of it unapologetically, regardless of what culture might say, we believe in the truth of the scriptures because men and women literally died in order to bring this Bible to fruition in our hands. William Tyndale in in England wanted to start smuggling German Bibles into England and the church of the day said, no, you do this, we will kill you. The church. So William Tyndale said, fair enough, I won't. No. He said this, There will come a day when every plowboy in England will know the scriptures better than you. And he started smuggling these Bibles in, but they were true to their word. 1536, they caught him, they strangled him, and they burnt his body. We move into Henry VIII. Oh, Henry VIII. What a guy. The so-called self-declared defender of faith, which, by the way, is still used in English royalty to this day. Our queen is the defender of faith. And by the way, just as a little 
track just to think about this. There is rumor that when the the next king comes in, he's going to change that to defender of faith. Not the faith. Of faith. I'll let you think about that just for a little while. Let's pray that he becomes and still stays the defender of the faith. He declared himself the defender of the faith, the Catholic Church at that time. The Pope was quite delighted, so much so that Henry VIII actually married one of the Pope's relatives, his first wife. But then, being Henry VIII, he started to fall out with his wife and went to the Pope and said, I want an annulment. The Pope said, no, because she's my relative. And so Henry VIII, in this beautiful moment, you talk about times that God takes history and turns it for good, dark times, and turns it for his end. Henry VIII, in a way that only Henry VIII could, said, fine. He said, I'll start my own church. And I'll make myself the head of the church and give myself an annulment. Which is exactly what he did. And roughly, in the, uh, roughly at around the early 1500s, 1527, the Church of England was born. The Anglican Church. On the back of Henry VIII needing an annulment. So let's just pause there just for a second and think about this. As you look at our culture, and you look at our uh, political state, you look at the things that make us as Christians heavy in heart, be assured, friends, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What we look at as being tragic and awful and terrible, God will use in his time and in his power, because his promise always comes to fruition, and you and I are that promise. So Henry VIII didn't want to spend time looking after this new fledgling Church of England, Anglican Church, so he put a man called Thomas Cramner in charge, later on became the first archbishop. What Henry VIII didn't really realize was that God had plans with Thomas Cramner, and Thomas Cramner started to read his Bible. Henry VIII didn't realize this was going to happen, because what happened is he started reading his scriptures, they became alive, and Thomas Cramner realized the truth of the gospel. See, friends, when I stand up here week by week going, hey, read your Bibles, read your Bibles, read your Bibles. You know, we've got apps, we've got posters, we've got artwork, we've got scripture on walls. Read your Bibles because the Bible changes lives. So Thomas Cramner started to teach the gospel, started to teach church leadership. And this Church of England, the revival started to work through it. And whenever there's a lack of control, persecution comes. So Thomas Cramner was taken and they demanded and he was arrested and some say that he had a nervous breakdown and they demanded that he recant until eventually a psychological wreck he recanted. The year is 1555 and the city is Oxford. Thomas Cramner's friends, Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were brought out in front of a crowd with a large, you can actually stand on the spot at this day, and they had this large fire built ready for Hugh Latimer and, 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 and Ridley. And, and they brought him out in front and they actually had Cramner. They used Cramner as an example of the power that they had over the church. Because they would bring him out like some kind of showcase to declare how he'd recanted. And so Cramner watched as Hugh Latimer and, and Nicholas Ridley were brought out in front of the crowd in this large fire. And they were thrown on the fire. To the famous words, this flame, this candle that they are now lighting, they will never be put out. We're that candle. You and I, 
in your offices and in your workplaces and in your schools and in your bus stops and coffee shops and your basketball games and your baseball games and your family and your neighborhoods. Friends, you and I are that candle that people like Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley died for so that we could have the truth of the promise, the gospel. See, I find that so invigorating and so powerful and so encouraging. A little while later, they brought out Cramner and they demanded that he recant once more for the fun of the crowd. The crowd go quiet. They built a fire for other martyrs on that same day. And Cramner said this. This is the archbishop who had recanted a few years previous. He said this. You asked me to recant. I recant my recantations. Furthermore, this hand that you signed those documents before you can throw me in the fire. I place the hand that signed those documents into the fire myself. And he put his own hand into the fire that was seconds later going to be his death. And they picked him up and threw him on as well. 200 other people died in the streets of Oxford that day. Because friends, the fire of the gospel cannot be put out. So when you decide to follow Jesus... You need to understand that, that that igniting of truth that happens in your heart is not by your own choice. That God has decided you're the one that I choose. Now, depending on your belief, you can resist that or not. That, that's a whole other sermon and I have preached on that in the past. But that ignition, that, that, that igniting of faith comes from a God who said this, I will build my church and you're part of that. That we'll apart church south. We are part of the candle. We are part of the flame. We are part of the promise. And so I thought long and hard about whether or not this is just part one. We move into 1556 through to modern day next week. But this week I thought and I prayed and I wondered whether I should spend some time applying all this. And I felt strongly, because that's what would be normally what I would do as a preacher, is you, you apply it. Okay, so what do we do? I think it applies itself. I think it applies itself. Scripture says we're surrounded by a crowd of witnesses. Near the end of the time when Jesus was coming close to death and resurrection and going back to heaven, there was questions about when he would return. And please listen to this because this is where I'm going to end. And I want you to remember this and by the way, I'm going to be presenting all, both sermons together at Pursuit Night School in a couple of weeks' time. So if you want a refresher, <laughs> then, uh, then you can come along to those. But Jesus was asked about when he would return, and Jesus said this, as in the days of Noah. And you look back at the days of Noah, and you look at who Noah was, That in itself is a whole sermon, his radical faith, his holiness, the fact that God had chosen him. But you know what fascinates me about what Jesus said? As in the days of Noah. So here's where I'm going to end. Whose days are these? Whose days do we live in now? The Glenn's days. The Wendy's days. The Steve's days. The Barry's days. The Bonnie's days. And I don't say that in an accusatory way. I say that in a way that we're the people of the promise. This is us. This is who we are. This is the promise we've been given. And and we've been told to go into the world 
and live that out in front of people and open our mouths and share it, knowing that the persecution will come. And so when we give out little, little business cards for you to give to your friends, and we pick them up and we put them in the pocket in front of us, these are our days. These are our days. This is us. This is who we are. This is the church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, to say that I have done any, anything to do justice to the story that we find ourselves in. Lord, just picking the ones or twos when there's literally been millions of people who have gone before us. Father, I'm so grateful. So grateful, Lord, for the men and the women and the children who literally gave their lives so that we could stand on the promise today. And Father, I pray that as a church, Willapart Church South, that we will hold that with the reverence that it deserves. That, Lord, that we would, we would spend time reverently thanking you for the calling that you gave them. And, Lord, I pray that we would stand on their shoulders and see further than they ever saw. And, Lord, I pray that one day people will tell stories. That, Lord, they'll have forgotten my name, but they won't forget what happened. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about 2019, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that this year will be the year of, the days of, that, God, that we would... In some small way, whether it be leading a community group, joining a community group, volunteering, sharing, joining with the art project, or coming early to pray, coming to Willow One, Lord, whatever step it is, Father, I pray that you would speak to us clearly. But thank you, Lord, that the promise is alive and well. I will build my church. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's stand together.